I want to ask you before we get to uh, the message this morning, how many of you have done something that seemed to go against everything that you thought and said you believed in at some point? Maybe you didn't realize it when it happened, but you're looking back on it and you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm a little saddened and quite surprised that that happened out of me when I say I believe this. Anybody ever anybody do that? Everybody? It's okay. Raise your hand. We're on the same page there. This passage today, uh, really we see a picture of that with Jonah. Uh, It's probably uh, the most bewildering and at the same time, in my opinion, the most wonderfully helpful section of this book of Jonah. And here's what I'm hoping. Here's what I'm hoping we agree and rejoice in together as we go through this. And that's this. A passion for God's glory is a passion to make Jesus known because Jesus is the fullest display of the glory of God. A passion for God's glory is a passion to make Jesus known because Jesus is the fullest display of the glory of God. And so let's look together at the passage. If you wouldn't mind standing, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 of Jonah 4. Let me read that for us. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Father, you are good. And everything you do is good. We are thankful that we can come together as your people, your temple. You dwell among us. You walk among us. And we are grateful and we beg you, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and faith to understand that with you here, Lord, There is mercy, there is grace, there's holiness, there's power, that you are to be feared, Lord, because of your greatness. And would you give us ears, Lord, ears to hear from you, Lord, from your word. Help us to have faith to believe your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, what's happening in this text? How do we get to this place? I mean, if, if we just had Jonah chapter 4, that's it. We didn't know any of the story of Jonah leading up to chapter 4, verse 1. Would we ever believe that this is a prophet of God? If all we have is Jonah's response, all we have is how he is uh, acting and praying and and the things that he's saying and the things that he's doing in chapter 4. Will we ever believe this Jonah is a prophet of God? How does he get to this place? Verse 1 says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. 
In chapter 1, we see that Jonah is a prophet and God's word comes to him and he flees. He runs the other way. But in his fleeing on this ship, he professes to these sailors, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. But we see that he's fleeing from that God. We, we see that he's, he's going the opposite direction. He's not obeying and God gets his attention. He's swallowed by a fish and in that fish he, he prays this humble and repentant prayer declaring the goodness of the Lord. And God's word comes back to him. He's recommissioned to go. And he rises, he goes to Nineveh and he preaches against Nineveh and the, the entire city is converted. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says what God did was exceedingly evil to Jonah. What God did was exceedingly evil to Jonah. What did God do? He saved. He saved sinners. He forgave their trespasses and relented from his plan to destroy them. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to the people of Nineveh. And now Jonah is angry. In fact, he's boiling into a rage. What God did was exceedingly evil in his mind. How do you get there? We see in this passage now why he never went to Nineveh in the first place. It wasn't that uh, Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites and he's afraid if I go to Nineveh, then they're going to do to me what they do to all their enemies. In fact, it wasn't even that, that Jonah feared failure. It wasn't that he was afraid he was going to go and fail in this great task that God had given him to do and he's afraid he's going to fail. We find out he feared success. He says, I knew it. I knew, I knew what would happen if I went. How do you get to this place? How is it that Jonah, a servant of God, his prophet, can be so upset over God's mercy? He doesn't see why Nineveh should share in the benefits that Israel enjoyed in knowing God. Verse 2 says, And he prayed to the Lord, and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is a different prayer than the humble prayer we heard or read that Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish. Jonah's taken his eyes off the Lord and placed them firmly on himself. He's trying now to justify himself to the Lord. Isn't this what I told you, God? Isn't this what I said would happen? In his mind, he's, he's absolutely right and God is absolutely wrong. I knew it. This is what Jonah's saying. I knew it. I, I knew you would do this, God. It's why I ran away in the first place. And if I had a chance to do it again, I would do it all the same. I would flee from you. I would go to Tarshish again because I knew you would do this. It's Jonah looking to God and saying, you should have listened to me in the first place. 
I knew, he says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Isn't that fascinating, this truth that he declares? But he's not rejoicing in it. He's bitter. He's angry that God is this way. It's evil to him that God would be this way. The truth about God makes Jonah angry, except for when it benefits Jonah. What we're seeing here is idolatry. It's the idolatry of Jonah's heart being revealed. As long as he gets what he wants, as long as things are going his way, then he's happy with God. But when God's glory means something other than what Jonah knows is best, he becomes angry. And as frightening as it is here in verse 1, He thinks that what God does is evil. And so he goes on in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Just let me die, God. If this is the way it's going to be, if this is the way you are, if if this is how it is, I don't even want to live. He's completely sincere in this. This is what he wants. Kill me, God. If this is what it's going to be like, if you're going to show grace to the people I don't want you to show grace to, if you're going to be merciful to the people I don't want you to be merciful to, then just kill me. It's not worth it, God. Can you imagine? This is, this is the prophet of God. How does he get to this place? That he would mean with all of his heart, I just want to die. I'd rather die, God. He's just seen probably the greatest revival that ever took place. And his response is, I'm out. I don't want this. How does he get here? We're going to see as we push further into this, Jonah doesn't love the glory of God. He loves the glory of Jonah and a selection of other people, his people. But he doesn't love the glory of God. And so when his way isn't God's way, he gets angry. James writes in his letter, James chapter 1, warning us against this. He says, be be, uh, quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. Be slow to anger, James says. Display that character of God. Display the the character of God that is slow to anger. Display that because our anger never produces God's righteousness. What good is Jonah's anger here? What, What good is it? What benefit is it that he's angry? There's no benefit at all. It's doing no good. All that Jonah's doing here is showing self pity and seeking the glory of himself. You think of the Apostle Paul compared to Jonah here. Jonah says, just kill me. Just, I'm out. If this is the way you are, I'm out. I'm done. Just kill me. I'd be, I'd be better off dead than seeing your glory displayed this way. You compare that with Paul, right? I mean, Jonah wants to die because he doesn't get his way. Paul wants to die because he wants to be with the Lord. He loves the glory of God. In fact, in Philippians 1, he's writing... To the Philippians, he says in in, uh, verse 20, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's not what we see in Jonah, is it? If, I, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. That's not what we see in Jonah. Jonah if, Jonah's saying, if this is what you're like, God, if this is who you are, then just wipe me out. Take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. And so how does God respond? Verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? It's amazing. Are you sure, Jonah, that you're evaluating the circumstances correctly? Are you sure you're reading this right? Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? I mean, we, would, we, we look at Jonah's response and, and certainly we think God has every right once again to crush him, to annihilate him, just take him out. If it were any of us, right, who are not merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If it's any of us and Jonah says, it's not worth it, just take me out. Go on, mid-sentence, you're out. God do you do well to be angry? It's amazing. God here again in his response to Jonah is displaying his glory, that he is slow to anger, that he is merciful, that he abounds in steadfast love, that he relents from disaster. The truths about God that Jonah is angry over are what's keeping him alive at this very second. And so how should we, how should we as the people of God respond? As we, as we look to Jonah's response to God's mercy, what could we learn and how are we to learn from that? How are we to respond to Jonah's response? I mentioned earlier, a passion for God's glory is a passion to make Jesus known because Jesus is the fullest display of the glory of God. We don't see that passion in Jonah. We see selfish sorrow. So how, how ought we to respond? And three things I want to look at. Three things we should do in response to God and who he is. And what we learn from Jonah here in his response. The first one is this. We should endeavor to love the glory of God more than the glory of man. We should endeavor to love the glory of God more than the glory of man. That's Jonah's problem here. This is why Jonah is angry. He doesn't love the glory of God more than or as much as he loves the glory of man or the glory of himself. We should endeavor to love the glory of God more than the glory of man. You look at what Jonah proclaims in verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What is that proclamation that he's proclaiming there? It's the glory of God. If you go back to Exodus 33, go back to Exodus 33. Go ahead and turn there. 
Moses approaches God and prays to him and says, show me your glory. You remember this, Mount Sinai? Exodus 33, starting with verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses makes this bold request of God. God, show me your glory. Let me see your glory, God. And God says, here's what I'll do. I'll I'll have my goodness pass before you, you. before you, but you can't see my face. And so I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And then as my glory passes by you and my, and I've passed by, then I'll uncover you. You can see my back, but you can't see my face. And then in chapter 34, he fulfills that promise to Moses in verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, I'll let my goodness pass before you. You can't look at my face, but I'll let my goodness pass. And as his glory is passing by Jonah, what does he declare? The same thing that Jonah declared about God. As Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and God's glory is passing by, he hears God declaring his glory. The Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, Jonah knows about God's glory, but he doesn't love it. He doesn't love the glory of God. But here's the good news that we get in Matthew 12. Something greater than Jonah has come. Jesus. Jesus is the display and fullness of God's glory. John 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jonah knows about God's glory, but he doesn't love God's glory. Jonah wanted security more than he wanted God to display his glory. We must endeavor to love the glory of God more than the glory of man. We must. We've been commissioned just as Jonah has been commissioned to go and make disciples. Disciple making is messy because people are messy just like we are. 
And if we do not endeavor to love the glory of God more than the glory of man, then we will gravitate towards the kind of security that Jonah sought. We'll prefer just doing our quiet times, day in and day out in our quiet house, with our quiet doors shut. And just day in and day out, we're just content with this quiet time, Lord. We won't do anything with it. We'll do this quiet time. If we don't endeavor to love the glory of God, we won't make disciples. We'll prefer the safety and the security that Jonah sought. Rather than getting involved in God's glory being displayed as he redeems messy and broken and hurting and unsafe people. God's glory is displayed in Jesus. He is a God merciful He's a God compassionate. He's a God slow to anger. He's a God gracious. He's a God abounding in steadfast love. Do we love his glory? So we should endeavor to love the glory of God more than the glory of man. Second, we should tell of his glory. Not because he needs us to, but because we love for him to be made much of. We should tell of his glory. Not because he needs us to, but because we love for him to be made much of. As you look at Jonah, you look at this this passage in Jonah. Jonah is not a joyfully obedient servant of God. Would we all agree to that? You look at Jonah, there's not this joyful, obedient, skipping into Nineveh. Man, I can't wait to see what you do, God. No. He's angry at God's glory. He's frustrated over God's glory. It was evil in his sight. But God still saved Nineveh. Jonah didn't want his neighbors to receive mercy. God still glorified himself. God didn't need Jonah and he doesn't need us. He will be glorified his glory will continue to shine through his mercy we should tell because we endeavor to love the glory of god and the more we see the glory of god which is displayed through jesus that he is a god merciful that he is a god slow to anger that he is a god abounding in steadfast love his his glory is displayed in jesus The more we see it displayed as people believe and receive the mercy and grace of a loving God and glorious God, the more we see it, the more we will love it. His glory is most fully seen in Jesus. God's mercy, his being gracious, slow to anger, his steadfast love, in him relenting from disaster. Those are most fully seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Did you think about the declaration of his glory on Mount Sinai? I am a God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and, and not um, excusing or, or, or um, what's the word? By no means clearing the guilty. How does that happen? Jesus. How is it possible that he could be merciful and not clear the guilty? We're all guilty. How is that possible? Jesus. 
His wrath is poured out on Jesus. And he shows his mercy in Jesus. And so he doesn't need us, but we should tell of his glory because we love for him to be made much of. We love to tell that he is a gracious God. We love to tell that he's merciful. We love to tell that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster and will by no means clear the guilty because we love for him to be made much of. Third, we should make much of the glory of God to all peoples because Jesus is our model, not Jonah. We should make much of the glory of God to all peoples because Jesus is our model, not Jonah. Something greater than Jonah has come. God displays his mercy, redeems an entire nation, dead in their trespasses and sins, awakens them to his glory through this five-word sermon of Jonah. Don't count, okay? It's eight in English. Five words, all right? This five-word sermon, and he awakens a people. What does Jonah do? He whines. Jonah whined because God displays his glory. But something greater than Jonah has come. What does Jesus do? As he approaches Jerusalem, he doesn't whine, he weeps. He weeps as he looks out over the people who didn't receive his glory, who didn't believe in him. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, it says that Jesus looked over the city and he wept over it. Over a people who didn't come to him, didn't see his glory. Jonah wanted to die because God saved people. Jesus did die to save people from their sins and to display the glory of God. We're called to follow Jesus. We're called to follow his life and we're called to follow his death. Dying to ourselves. Not idolizing ourselves anymore. Not living for ourselves. Renouncing ourselves. Renouncing all for Christ and following him and his life and his death. Living in such a way that others glorify him. That's what Jesus says in in Matthew 5 verse 16. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father who's in heaven. That we would live in such a way loving the glory of God and, and, and making much of him as we proclaim his mercy and goodness. That others would see and others would glorify him. A passion for God's glory is a passion to make Jesus known because Jesus is the fullest display of the glory of God. And so like Paul, not like Jonah, but like Paul, we rejoice. We, we are happy if people are hearing Christ. Even as, as Paul says, even out of envy or, envy or rivalry. Remember in, in chapter one of Philippians, Paul's in prison writing to the Philippians. And in verse 15, he says, uh, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. In other words, some, some people are preaching just so I'll be punished more. Just so I'll be afflicted more. How does Paul respond to that? Verse 18, what then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Are we more like Paul or are we more like Jonah? Do we whine at the commission that God has given us to make much of the glory that we say that we love? Or like Paul, are we rejoicing and happy no matter how Christ is preached? As long as he's preached, Christ is being made much of, and for that we rejoice. The gospel that we proclaim and love is a message about a person. But it's not just something we stare at. That's what we tend to do. We just stare at the gospel. It's like we're window shopping. There's the gospel on the other side. Boy, that's nice. Isn't that nice? Just, man, that just, it's just so nice on the way the mannequin is there. It's just nice. Look at the gospel. Let's just behold the gospel. We never put it on. We never put on the clothing of the gospel. That's what Paul says we have to do. This is who you are. This gospel is true about you. It has implications for your life. You're made new. You have a new identity. The old is gone. You're hidden in Christ. You have a new identity. So put on the clothes of the gospel. Start acting like you already are. The gospel that we say that we love, that we rejoice in, that we proclaim is a message about Jesus and it has implications for us. We are united with Christ. We're hidden in Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life and died for our sins and was raised never to die again. And we are hidden in him. We're hidden in him. We're counted righteous in Christ. Treated as if we lived the life he alone could live. We've died to sin. He was treated as if he lived like us. Our sins completely wiped away in him. And we've been raised with him. Death is conquered in Christ. And so Romans 8, 1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're set free completely. Completely set free. God's wrath completely satisfied. That's who we are These things that we talk about, the things we're looking at today and we talk about week in and week out, that's who we are now. We've been saved by grace, not at all by works, by grace. And so making disciples and making much of Jesus and obedience to Jesus, they're not means of receiving grace. Grace has been given freely. We've been adopted. We've been changed. We have a new identity These are parts of our new identity. We are disciple makers. We do make much of Jesus. We are obedient to him. That's what Paul tells us. That's our new identity. So start acting like it, Paul says. Put on the clothes that you've just been staring at. It's what God has graciously made us to be. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a, is a means of communicating that truth. And just as we, you think you take the bread that, that symbolizes his body that was broken. He was beaten and, and died. His body was 
broken for us. And we hold the cup that has the juice in it. It represents his blood that was poured out, spilt for our sins. And just as literally as we take the bread and take the cup and we we eat the bread, we, we drink this juice, just as literally as those become a part of our body, Paul tells us we have literally become a part of Christ. We are literally hidden in him. So now, Ephesians 1, 4, we are holy and blameless before him. We're identified with Christ through his death and resurrection. And he enables us to walk in newness of life by giving his spirit to us. Those are just the wonderful truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All by grace. So this morning we're going to take communion together. And let's just, let's just rejoice together in this new identity. Let's participate together in proclaiming his body and blood, his death and glorious resurrection. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed so that we can now be holy, united in Christ, redeemed, clean, no condemnation. It's who we are. I would encourage you, if you've not believed the gospel, if you haven't trusted in Jesus to set you free from your sin and from death, as, as these elements go by, it's just going to be a cracker and a, and a cup with juice in it. These just symbolize what we rejoice in. These are just symbols of we're participating, the scriptures say, with Christ. With the body and blood of Christ. These are just symbols. And so we'd encourage you, if you've never believed the gospel, if you haven't received him and you haven't received the forgiveness that he offers in his grace, then just let the elements go by. What we'd encourage you to do today is is partake of Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in the work that he did that you could never do, that he died for your sins so that you could be set free. Partake of him. Believe in him. Don't partake of Partake of just the symbols of it. Partake of the fullness of the truth of the gospel and be set free. Believe in Jesus Christ today. For the rest of us, as the, as the bread and the cup passes, let's just rejoice together. He is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your glory that you have displayed in your son, Jesus Christ, who came to prove that you love us. That you are merciful. That you are gracious. That you are slow to anger. That you abound in steadfast love. But that you will by no means clear the guilty. You have proven your love for us. And you have put your wrath on your son. So that whoever believes. Will be saved. Forgiven. Lord I pray. I pray for us that you would help us. By your spirit that you would help us. Would you allow your presence to go before us. That we would see your glory that we would rejoice as we proclaim the body and blood of Jesus, that we would rejoice in our hearts and our expression 
that you are a God merciful. You are a God gracious. You are God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Would you help us for your name's sake that you would be glorified in us and through us. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.